Good morning, once again. Uh, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Gospel of Mark chapter 10. Uh, just as just a brief introduction, we left off last week with Jesus and his disciples uh, headed to Jerusalem. Sort of the final move, if you will, the final step towards the cross. They're headed to Jerusalem. And there is a real palpable sense that this is the culmination of Jesus's ministry. We get that sense here in the text. We'll read it in just a moment. But the disciples, as Jesus is walking forward towards Jerusalem and they're following behind him, there's a sense of awe and amazement and fear as they look at Jesus. They are beholding their messianic king. And they're in awe. Of course, what's in store for Jesus and his disciples is beyond their comprehension. And we'll see that in our text as well this morning. Um, so with that, let's turn to our text, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, starting in verse 32, going all the way to 52. Mark 10, 32 to 52. Hear God's word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whatever would be great, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, 
call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the one who willingly gave himself up as a ransom for us. This morning, we ask that you would help me to preach your word faithfully, and we ask that you, by your spirit, would work on our hearts that we might see Jesus more clearly. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. So in the animated version of uh, the Peanuts, uh, you know, think of like Charlie Brown Christmas or something like that. Uh, There's a curious thing. When the adults talk, when they speak, they don't utter words, right? You just get that uh, trombone sound. Wah, 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 wah. And I guess in the comic strip, there were no adults. So when they decided to make it into an animated feature, uh, they needed to deal with that. What do you do? And so if they had an adult in the scene, what they decided to do was simply not to give them any voice. And what's the effect of that? Well, the effect is that what the adults are saying doesn't make a whole lot of a, a whole lot of sense, right? It just it's just noise. Well, I think the disciples when they listened to Jesus talk about his mission, they heard wah 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 wah. Three times. Three times Jesus has expressed his mission to go to the cross, to suffer, to die, and to rise again. And three times, the disciples' reaction shows a complete and utter lack of understanding. In the first instance, in chapter 8, we looked at, uh, remember, Peter had confessed that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. And immediately that, after that, Jesus said, the Son of Man has to go to the cross, he has to die, and he has to rise again. And what does Peter do? Well, Peter rebukes the Lord Jesus. The second time in chapter 9, after Jesus again tells his disciples of his suffering, death, and resurrection, what is, what is their immediate reaction? Do you remember? They start arguing about who is the greatest. They start talking about their pecking order, how they stand in relationship to Jesus. And now for a third time, and in the clearest terms that we've had yet, Jesus expresses his mission. And what is James and John's response? They want to seek a place of privilege next to his right and on his left. It's as if Jesus' words didn't register. Wah, 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 wah. But I think... We are like those disciples. Things we don't want to hear, things we don't like, we conveniently ignore. Things that don't seem to fit our paradigm about how life should be, we simply jettison. And there is a lot about life that we, 
we don't want to hear about, isn't there? And if there's one thing that we think life is about, we think it's about our glory. It's about getting our way. It's about having the good life. It's about being recognized and praised. It's about the accumulation of worldly goods, which we looked at last week when the rich young ruler came and said, what must I do uh, to inherit uh, eternal life? And he said, sell everything, right? That's what we want. We want the accumulation of worldly goods. It isn't about power or position. It isn't about fairness and freedom. It isn't about the pursuit of happiness or the American dream. Jesus' words that he says over and over again in the Gospels are like dissonant notes. They don't seem to fit. What is this about suffering and dying, Jesus? That's, That's not what I signed up for. Jesus says, whoever is great among you must become a servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do we comprehend what Jesus is saying to us? In our texts before us, we have two contrasting accounts. We have two times in which people come to Jesus and ask for something. In the first case, it's James and John. And in the second case, it's the blind beggar, Bartimaeus. And this morning, I want us to examine this contrasting nature of these requests. But my goal isn't simply to say, be like Bartimaeus, don't be like James and John, okay? Now, don't get me wrong. I think Bartimaeus's cry is, is a good cry. It's a right cry. But what I want us to see is that we are like both Bartimaeus and James and John. Like James and John, we often believe that the world is about us. It's about our arriving. It's getting a leg up. It's about success or money or power or privilege. It's about position. But the truth is, we are actually like Bartimaeus. We are blind and in desperate need of God's mercy. So as we look at our text this morning, what I really want us to see is Jesus. I want us to see the wonders of his mercy and his love, especially as we reflect on his mission to be a servant to all and to give his life as a ransom for many. And my hope is that you would come to Jesus, the one who came not to be served but became a servant to all. And we'll look at this call to come to Jesus in three parts. I want to look at the privileged few, the beggar, and the son of David. So those are the three parts. And they're not evenly spaced or anything. We'll spend quite a bit of time on the privileged few. It's the bigger part of this text. Um, But we are going to look at the beggar in brief. And then I want us to conclude by looking at the son of David. So first, the privileged few. Our text begins with the disciples on the road to Jerusalem. It's hard to imagine what it must have been like to follow Jesus. The text says that as they followed behind, that they were amazed and afraid. I pointed that out in the introduction. Um, as you know, I, I can hardly help using an illustration from boating, so you just excuse this. Um, 
I've had some harrowing moments on the ocean. For those of you who don't know that I love boats, that I love to be on the water in any capacity, uh, I'll just tell you that my very first word was boat. So I apologize up front. Anyway, I've had a few times where being on the ocean has left me completely and utterly shaken. But not in the moment. Usually in the moment, I'm focused. I'm trying to escape whatever danger that I'm in. I'm trying to get back to shore, uh, whether it's the wind or the waves or whatever it is. I'm focused. But as soon as I step off the boat and I turn around, my knees start to shake. And as I look out on the ocean, I wonder at its awesome power. And for a lot of us, that would be like, I'm never doing that again. But for me, it's this attractional thing. It's like, oh, wow, what an amazing thing, this fear-inducing thing. I want to be part of it. And I think there's something like that going on here with the disciples as they As they're walking to Jerusalem, as they've taken a pause in the ministry, as they're just kind of walking along the road and they're looking at their Savior and they're reflecting on what they've experienced and who this man is. As they look at the Messiah, they're saying, whoa. And they're amazed. And they're afraid. Who is this? They wonder at his mighty works. And it terrifies them. They are headed to Jerusalem with the Messiah. Now, in the midst of their wonder and amazement and their fear, Jesus disturbs their wonder by calling them to himself and explaining his mission, that he has to go and be delivered up and suffer and die, as I've already described. But James and John are not easily distracted. While they cannot comprehend what he means, right? They don't don't fully get what he's talking about. Though, to be honest, Jesus' words here are as plain as they have been, right? He is going to be delivered up by the chief priests and the scribes, who will, he'll be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes, who will then condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, meaning the Gentile rulers, who will in turn mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. The words are plain as day. But James and John, they can't comprehend it. But they see Jesus. They see him for who he is. They see him as the Messiah, the King of Kings, and the one who would establish the eternal kingdom. And when as awe-inspiring and fear-inducing as that is, they were drawn to him. Like a moth to a flame, maybe you could say. They, They couldn't help themselves moving towards Jesus. And James and John, of course, had had a taste of glory, hadn't they? They had been up to the mountain with Jesus. They had gone to the Mount of Transfiguration and beheld the transfigured Lord. And at that time, who was at the right and left hand of Jesus? None other than Moses and Elijah. Right? That's what they wanted. They wanted to sit there in glory at Jesus' right and left hand to be like Moses and Elijah. So no matter what Jesus means about dying and rising, when the banquet feast comes, They say, we want to be there. We want to be seated right next to him, basking in his glory. Now, I think it's easy to get on the disciples' case, right? 
They seem selfish and self-serving. And, and I would say yes to that. They are. And in fact, <laughs> that comes out clearer in the text in a little bit. But before we beat on them too hard, I want us to have some understanding. You see, Jesus was not only their Messiah. He was their friend. Jesus loved them. And they loved Jesus. In fact, John self-identifies as the beloved disciple in his gospel. So it's natural for them to desire to be near Jesus, to sit by him, to be close to him. There is often a debate at our dinner table table when uh, grandma, either one, comes around. Right? Who gets to sit next to grandma? Right? The seating arrangement is set by the, the little ones at that moment. Why? Because it's an expression of deep love. They want to be close to their grandma. It's an expression of that affection and admiration. But there's more to it than just natural affection and desiring to be near Jesus. Right? That's a good thing. We all ought to desire to be close to Jesus. But for James and John, it was also about position in the messianic kingdom. The one who sits at the right hand and the left hand of the king is not simply beloved by the king, but he holds a position of power and authority. People would look up to him, and James and John presumed that they, of all disciples, I don't know where they thought Peter should be. Maybe they thought Peter's dug his own grave a few times and didn't deserve to be Uh, as close to Jesus. I'm not sure, but those three at the least deserved a place at the table close to Jesus. And I love the way they come to Jesus, right? Like children asking their parents to do something they know the parents are likely to refuse. You know, if your kids come to you and say, promise you will say yes. That's That's a moment to pause, right? As a parent. No, <laughs> right? No, no, it doesn't work like that. But he, but he says, promise you'll say yes. And, you know, you kind of wonder uh, if they're being a bit presumptuous. I think they probably are. But we know that Jesus later says to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. So I'm guessing that Jesus had spoken words like that already to the disciples. Come to me, ask, seek. And so, yes, maybe they're being a bit presumptuous, but here they are. They're like, all right, here's our moment. Don't refuse us, Jesus. So James and John go boldly to Jesus. Not a bad thing. Boldly coming to Jesus is a good thing. But it was the nature of their request and their misunderstanding of Jesus' mission, that was the problem. They were consumed with themselves. They were concerned with where they stood in relationship to Jesus and the other disciples and followers of Jesus. They wanted the glory of Jesus to be reflected on them in a unique and special way. Now, as far as it goes, it's not a wrong thing, again, 
to desire to want the reflected glory of Jesus. We all want that. In fact, it's, it's a guarantee given to us that we will receive glory. So it's not wrong to desire the glory, the reflected glory of Jesus. But let's be honest, that's not the kind of glory that the disciples were seeking. They wanted a glory that, while it maybe they could say reflected from Jesus, but was really a self-glory. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what kind of glory are we looking for when we go to Jesus? Are we looking for his reflected glory? Are we, or is it just a way to say, Jesus, make me glorious in and of myself. Give me everything that I want so that people can, be, can like me. Or Maybe just to throw out a few, this is maybe extreme, but if we were to dig into our hearts a little bit, Jesus, I'm asking you to make my life easier. Give me a little bit of money so I can be comfortable. Take away all the annoying people in my life. You know, like, help others like me. To think well of me, to look up to me, to praise me. Don't let me suffer hardship or pain. Bless me with the good of this world. Lord, I deserve a good life. This is maybe extreme picture of what James and John are doing, but I do think at our heart, at our core, that sinful desire is to bring glory to ourselves. Adam and Eve were glory thieves in the garden. We may not be so bold-faced in our request, but I wonder if a little bit of our desire to be close to Jesus is to enjoy glory that is really not the reflected glory of Jesus, but is that self glory. It's a worldly glory. So what is the glory of Jesus like? Well, the glory of Jesus is a glory marked by suffering. It's marked by dying to self. It's a glory that goes to the grave first. James and John did not comprehend. They thought they were going to Jerusalem to sit at a banqueting table. How does Jesus respond to them? He doesn't dismiss them outright. Instead, he has compassion on them. He says, you don't understand what you're asking for. And picking up their language of banqueting, of sitting at the right hand and the left hand, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Now, in Scripture, the cup often symbolizes blessing and banqueting. Think of Psalm 23 that we'll be looking at this uh, this Tuesday. My cup overflows, right? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's a sign of blessing from the Lord. But the idea of a cup can also be different in Scripture. It can be a symbol of wrath that is stored up. Isaiah 51, 17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of wrath, who have drunk to the dregs of the bowl the cup of staggering. All the way at the end, uh, 
at the, at the book of Revelation, it says, the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So when Jesus says, James and John, do you think you can drink the cup set for me? Jesus is thinking about the cross. He's thinking about the wrath of God that is going to be poured out on him. And in one sense, they could not share in that cup. When he went to the cross, he went alone. He took upon himself the wrath and curse of God for sinners like you and me. Then Jesus changes the metaphor. He says, do you think you can be baptized with the baptism that I was baptized with? You know, we often think of baptism as a wonderful event in the life of the believer, and it is, right? It's a, it's a sign and a seal of God's covenant grace to us. It is his, us being cleansed and washed. It's us being buried with Christ and risen, rising with Christ. It's, it's all the wonderful union and communion that we have with Christ and with one another. All those beautiful pictures of what baptism is. We sometimes forget that baptism is also a sign of God's judgment. When Pharaoh and his army followed the, the Israelites through the Red Sea, the Israelites were baptized into the Red Sea, Scripture tells us. So were Pharaoh and his army. It's a sign of both judgment as well as grace. But here, it's talking about judgment. Can you be baptized with death, with the judgment of God for sinners that I have to take for you? You can't have that. It's not for you. There was no way James and John could satisfy God's wrath for the sin of mankind. They could not drink the cup in that sense, though they deserved it. They couldn't bear the judgment of God for humanity. They couldn't grasp this. James and John just could not get their minds around this, this idea that the path to Jerusalem was the path of glory, but the glory was the cross. Foolishly, (laughs) James and John, they're like, yep, we're in. We can do it. We can drink it. We can be baptized. We'll go through whatever is necessary to be by your side. And you can see and hear in Jesus' words his deep sadness. Or maybe I'm reading into it a little bit. But you can imagine that he was grieved when he said these words because he knew what they were going to do. He says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. What is he saying to James and John there? He was saying that, yes, as my followers, you will follow me to the cross. You will share in my suffering. The way down is the way up. The way of glory is through death. And you will share in that. Friends, when we come to Jesus, 
When we desire to be at his side, to share in his glory, to be identified with him, it means sharing in the ignominy of the cross. The disciples, they caught wind of the request by James and John, and they were indignant. You could imagine, right? Like, wait a minute, you're just going to go and try to get your spot? What about the rest of us? You see, they too were caught up in earthly glory. And what's Jesus' response? He says, what you, he pulls them all together and he says, come on, guys, you need to hear this. What you guys are talking about is what the Gentiles do. It's what the world does. It's all about positioning. It's all about priority. It's all about power. It's all about making a name for yourself. And and it's all about you. But that's not the way of my kingdom. That's the way of the world. They lord over you. They rule over you. It's all about them. Not so in my kingdom. My kingdom is of a completely other sort. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you must be least of all. You must be a servant. You want to be first in my kingdom? If you, want, if you have to use that kind of language of first and last, you have to become a slave to all. That means you lose yourself and die to yourself. Friends, what or who are you about? Are you about yourself? About your glory? Now, I want to come back to Jesus in just a minute. We're going to look at his words here about the Son of Man not coming to be served. We'll come back to those words in a little bit, but I want us to look at blind Bartimaeus for just a moment. I want us to think about the beggar. Set the scene for you. They're headed to Jerusalem and they're going to that famous city of Jericho. Kids know what happened at Jericho, right? And the walls came tumbling down, right? It was the first city that was conquered by the Israelites as they came across the Jordan River into the promised land under Joshua. It was the first place they came to. And here it is. They're coming into Jericho and the effects of sin and the ravages of the fall are evident as a man who is blind, whose name, and I'll just throw this out there, Bartimaeus. Bar is uh, the Aramaic for son of. Um, So he's the son of Timaeus. Now, the Greek potential root for Timaeus um, is very positive. It's like honored one or something like that. But it, there's a little bit of a play on words here because in Aramaic or in the Hebrew, if the, you, the, the root word there for Timaeus, Tame, is about somebody who is unclean. It's the word for uncleanness or impurity. So maybe his father named him son of, uh, you know, the the honored one. But you can imagine the people around him would tease him. Son of uncleanness. Why? And his father's name was Timaeus. 
Why are you blind? Is it some sin of your father's or is it some sin that you've done? But in reality, his brokenness, his blindness was just an effect of the sin that has corrupted all of mankind, of humanity itself. It was a sign of the kingdom of hell that was remaining there in Jericho. And Jesus comes by and he cries out, son of David. Here's a man who can't even see, who's a beggar. And he recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, as the son of David. Have mercy on me. Of course, what's the response of the followers of Jesus? Hush! I mean, you're bothering the glorious Messiah as he goes to the as he goes to Jerusalem. Hush! Stop your talking. Just get out of the way. Move aside. You are nobody. This is the King of Kings. You see the irony? James and John, they wanted a high position. They wanted to be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. They wanted to stand there by Jesus and absorb the glory and, and exude glory and power and authority. And here was a blind beggar, least of the least. Get out of the way. Stop bothering Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Tell him to come. Tell him to come. So then they think, oh, this is another moment for Jesus to show his power and glory. And it, it is, but they go to the beggar. They say, come. Come to, come to, to Jesus. He's calling you. Take heart. What does he do? He throws off his cloak, his beggar's cloak, and he runs blindly to Jesus. Jesus, instead of saying, or instead of the blind man saying, Lord, answer me, this one thing, say yes, no matter what it is, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Do you see that flip? The disciples said, oh, Lord, do whatever we ask of you. And here Jesus comes and says, blind beggar, I will do whatever you ask of me. The least of the least. So he comes to Jesus and he says, I want sight. I want to be able to see. Teacher, open my eyes. What does Jesus do? He opens his eyes. And he says, go your way, do whatever you want. And what does Bartimaeus do? Does he say, okay, thank you, Jesus. Some other people, after they were healed, did this. They walk away. But what, is, what does Bartimaeus do? He says, I'm going that way. I'm going to follow you on this way. I'm going to go your way. Jesus lifted him up, the lowest to the low. He took him and he gave him sight. And here's the reality. We are like Bartimaeus. Hear these words from 1 Corinthians. 
Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But what did God do? He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. He raised up the blind beggar, least among the least, to be his disciple. Why? So that no human, might, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This brings me to my conclusion. This is all about Jesus. The son of David, the Messiah. There's some interesting things that that this blind beggar would call him son of David was unique. It's the only time in the Gospel of Mark that that title is used of Jesus, that he would even recognize him as the Messiah and declare it. Remember, most of the time, uh, the declaration of the Messiah was done in private and Jesus would hush it. Jesus doesn't do that here. He's about to go and do what he was called to do. He was on his final leg of his mission. His glory was about to be revealed. And what is the mission of Jesus? The mission of Jesus was to lay down his life. To become the least of the least. To identify himself with the least of the least. To become a servant of all. Jesus was going to Jerusalem to be lifted up, but to be lifted up on a cross outside of the camp, so to speak, at the hands of the Gentiles. There is nothing more awful in the mind of the Jew of that day to think that their Messiah would die at the hands of the Roman authorities. Their whole hope was that By this Messiah coming, they would rid themselves of these foreign oppressors. And here Jesus was going to die, to be flogged, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be spit upon, to be raised up, to be crucified. And why? That he might take the things that are not, you and me, broken sinners, blind beggars, and to make them things that are. He came to take the foolish things and make them wise. Jesus had brought his disciples around him, and he had said, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. He said this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give give himself as a ransom for many. Friends, 
Where do you look for glory? Do you look for it in making a name for yourself? Do you look for it in all the glorious things of this world? Do you gather together? Do you look for it in your relationships and in your and in your position of power and authority? Where is it that you look for glory? We're called to look to the glory of the cross, to identify with that, to drink that cup. And what does that mean for us? Well, it means redemption. It means ransom. It means being bought back. It means being having our eyes opened. It means being able to see the wonders and glories of Jesus Christ and to follow him. And it also means a glory yet to be revealed. Glory in heaven. But the other thing it means is it affects the way we look at one another. How we treat one another. How we love one another. How we lay our lives down for one another. That is the cup we drink. That is the baptism we've been baptized with. All glory and praise be to Jesus. Let's pray.